This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Will. Hello, Sam. And we are jumping into Exodus chapter 18, which is a it's a chapter where we jump into Moses, time management, how to lead ministry, the demands of ministry when everybody's coming after you and everybody's got requests. And I guess it doesn't have to be exclusively for ministry, but it's how in the world do you delegate so that you're not burnt out and all of the things surrounding that, that actually are super, super practical to ordinary life to keep yourself from burnout. Uh, And so this is Exodus 18. We're jumping right in. Yeah. First self-care chapter, really. Yeah, totally. Because if you're if you're looking at the life of Moses, this guy needs some counseling. <laughs> I mean, he's he has had people that have been after him, complaining at him. I mean, and lots of pressure on his back. Even though God is leading, and God's ultimately the one who's going to to sustain and provide and redeem and and deliver the people. The people aren't looking to God; they're looking to Moses to go to God. And when something doesn't happen that they like. They're blaming Moses more so than God, which would be a super stressful place to be. And so now they've come through the Red Sea. They're going out into the wilderness. God is supernaturally and very graciously providing manna for them in this place filled with rocks and dirt, honey-flavored wafers that are like coriander seed is what manna is, quail, the big fat birds, lots of protein, water from a rock, like God is going out of his way to supernaturally show these people that he can provide for them. And oh, by the way, the reason why they're going to stay in the wilderness so long is not because God requires them to be in the wilderness. It's because they, as we'll see later in, in the life of Moses, are too cowardly to get out of the wilderness. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about Exodus is the people are actually allergic to freedom. Hmm. Like they, they're... We've talked about this in previous chapters. They're longing, like, we wish we were still in Egypt. We wish we had died in Egypt where we had pots of meat. And there's a very real sense, and you learn this as as you grow older, you see it more and more, where people are more content to be enslaved and safe than to be free and have the slightest sense of independence and, and risk or anything like that. We are by nature, and I think in our sin, we're a slavish people. Do you see that? Yeah, I think it's our love of comfort. Wouldn't that be mm-hmm. it? Totally. Like we do put that above all else in a lot of aspects. It's to- totally that's what it is. It's, it's why communism is so appealing, right? Like, I mean, let's just say it. I, I might not have the dream of making a life for myself. I might not be able to go forge out and use liberty to be an entrepreneur or to go chase my dreams. But even if you put me in an oppressive system where, you know, everything is going to be top down and you tell and you dictate everything to me and I have to forfeit tons of my liberty just for the promise that you're going to take care of everybody equally and I'm going to have some kind of a bare minimum, even if it's squalor, but I know that there's some minimum safety net and that's the appeal of it. And people are so quick to want to rush towards slavery, which is exactly what that is. It takes away all of your liberty. And you see that throughout the scripture. And scripture, by the way, is calling you to be a, a people of liberty mm. and not to rush toward the safe tyrant because that's what Pharaoh is. Yeah, you're going to have a pot of meat and some bread, but you have no autonomy, no liberty. Everything is fixed for you. And God is saying, no, 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 I want to call you to bigger and better things. But in order to do that, you're going to have to trust that I'm going to provide for you and you can't see me, you know? And I think that's that's where Moses is getting in trouble is he's calling these people to say, hey, let's go do this big thing out in the wilderness. In a de- Like how in the world is God possibly going to provide for us out here? But you're going to have to trust in order to have freedom. And you're going to trust he's going to give you your daily bread. And that, it's just fascinating to see how they continually long to be enslaved. 
And I guess Moses Moses is a physical manifestation of God to them. Yeah, totally. So yeah. that's why he takes all the punches. He's that's right. He's a punching bag because he's present. Yeah. How do you see that in your life? Where do you say, you know what, I, I don't want to risk something I would rather have slavery? Hmm. I can like when you boil it down to its base element, you see that in so much of the Christian life. For example, evangelism. Why don't you evangelize? Yeah, because I'm comfortable with how people view me and I don't want to mess that up. That's right. So you're enslaved to the need to manage your reputation. You, if, if I could say, Will, you get to blink and, an, and you choose one of these two paths, right? Either you're instantaneously this great evangelist who's led 100 people to the Lord in the past year, people are looking at you like, you know, God is using you mightily, or you are a hermit, you don't share your, which one would you choose? First one. The first one, but why don't you choose that then? Why don't you strive after it? Yeah. Because that means you've got to break out and do something that's really risky and it could cost you a lot of things. And we are so much more comfortable to just be safe. And that's, that's a slavish nature where we're terrified of what could be the consequence. We'd rather have the bare minimum life where we don't make a lot of waves and we don't do things that are bold and courageous and risky for the sake of the kingdom because mm, I'd rather manage my life to where I've got at least some pots of meat, <laughs> you know, in our slavery. And you see that in so many different ways in our lives. I feel that all over the place where enslaved to keep up the reputation, enslaved to keep the minimum bank account to where I don't want to risk or do anything big or start something. And that's one of the things about, you know, that, that came out of the Reformation when, when faith became something that was personalized to each person and family that's where capitalism kind of comes out of that, where the individual and property rights and big risk comes. It's that actually came out of the Protestant Reformation, which is a whole nother podcast episode, but it enabled people to do big things because this world isn't all there is. You know, you, you could do big things with your life because you have an inheritance that cannot be shaken. So why not do something big, risk something big with a life that scripture says is but a mist and a vapor anyway. Yeah, and I guess my problem is the same as the Israelites in these passages. It's they don't trust God. Like completely, I don't yeah, really trust God. With my reputation. I feel like I can handle it better, and I'm going to do it this way because this is the way I handle it. Bank mm-hmm. account, same thing. So it's just, I mean, the same human nature sin that's just flowing through all of us is the big option there. Completely. I mean, I was talking with somebody about this about how I feel fearful about so much. And, you know, this is my seminary professor talking with me, former seminary professor. Now he's a friend because I'm getting old. Um, And he was saying, you know, fear is the antithesis of faith. It's it's the the absolute inverse of faith because it's like I don't trust that this is going to work out. And so I feel this compulsion to manage it and to stress and fret about how it's going to turn out which is the absolute opposite of faith that then faith calls you, hey, yeah, you got to go do your duty. But ultimately, you can set all your luggage down and say, okay, God, I did my part. The results are yours, whether you want to bless them or not, but I'm going to walk in freedom, not fretting about what's going to happen with the results. That's faith. And that's a life, man, I wish I could live. (laughs) But that sinful absence of trust creates this slavish condition where we'd rather have safety than to do a big thing. And in the Israelites' case, they're kind of caught in the middle where they've done the big thing by following Moses out, but they just can't close the deal by being bold enough to risk the promised land. And so now they're stuck in the wilderness complaining about their fate for 40 years. Yeah, I guess I've never thought about that verse out of 2 Timothy 1.7 that says, you know, you've not been given a spirit of fear, mm-hmm. but of power of love and of self-control. And I've never thought about it in that regard. Like, it's mm, one that I've, it's good. Like I briefly think about, it and it makes sense. But yeah, if, no, he could have chose a thousand other words than fear there, but you've not yeah, been given good. a spirit of fear. Read that verse again. For you've not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Or mm. a sound mind that some translations do the sound mind at the end, which I think is also interesting. That's awesome. Like that's, I mean, again, fears is put as a contrary to love, power, and self-control. And it's so easy to go there. So the reason why all these people in this chapter that we're about to go into are constantly in front of Moses complaining is because there's a massive spirit of fear. <laughs> you know, they have to have every problem figured out. Moses needs to manage everything. And so as they're coming out, 
you have the elders of Israel, you know, some of the guys that are the heads of household, and they're kind of leaders in this kind of patriarchal structure uh, that they had back then. But Moses is the guy. He's he's kind of governing guy, and he just gets buried <laughs> in this chapter. And so picking up at verse 1, it says Jethro. Now, we, we remember Jethro. This is the father of Moses' wife. Remember, Moses meets his wife at a well. When he's running out of Egypt and Pharaoh wants to kill him, it says Moses goes to a well, which is where everybody finds their brides, if you remember that. Hanging out the well. It's, it's like, right? Isaac's wife is from a well. Jacob's wife is from a well. Moses' wife is from a well. Jesus meets a Samaritan half-breed, sinful, adulterous woman at a well, which means his brides, all those things, which is us. <laughs> and, and, but Moses' wife comes from a well. She takes him home, and he meets Jethro. So this is where we get him. And he's a priest of Midian. And Midian is one of the sons. This is the line that comes from Abraham. So after Sarah dies, Abraham remarries a lady named Keturah. And she has, I think, six sons, and that one of them is Midian, and the Midianites come from that. So the Midianites would have worshipped Yahweh. They would have been triggered out of this line from Abraham. But as you're going to find in this, they did not worship Yahweh perfectly. There had been a lot of syncretism, it sounds like, that creeped in. And so while they acknowledge Yahweh and he's going to bless Yahweh, there's some, he's like, oh, better than all the other gods. And like he's He's got a bunch of gods on his shelf, it sounds like, but they acknowledge Yahweh as a great God. So he's got perverse or messed up, diluted, distorted faith. So Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So by the way, we learned that when Joshua, 40 years later, shows up in Jericho, they'd heard of it. They're all trembling in the city of Jericho, fearful, because everybody had heard what God had done for Moses and the Israelites, and everybody feared the Israelites. In fact, archaeological nerdy side note, Will's rolling his eyes. Wake up, everybody. <laughs> Brace yourself. One of the things that you find right in this period of history is something called the Amarna Letters. And their letters that were sent from the land of Israel all through that region from cities like Jerusalem that are being sent down to Amarna, which was the capital of Egypt for a brief time. And it's going to be during the period where you'll find Joshua. And it's all these cities saying, help the, they call them the Habiru, which is probably Hebrew. All the Harvard scholars believe that that's Hebrew. Close enough. But it's the Habiru are invading. We need your help, Egypt. Will you not send people to help defend us? because this people group called the Habiru were conquering all the cities. Well, that's here, and they were terrified. The Habiru were coming, the Habiru were coming. And so just like Jethro's heard about it, and just like Jericho had heard about all this, all the cities that are writing letters to Egypt, which we still have, are writing about it, which is kind of cool. So it says, Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home along with her two sons. So again, if we reverse the story when moses goes into egypt he takes zipporah and the sons they get on the donkey remember the crazy circumcision story that's disturbing from exodus two or three well he takes everybody and then when it starts getting real you know like this this is this is getting real now moses sends them back like the battle the war is starting to rage i want you to go back home you'll see me when you see me the name of one and these are instructive because it reveals um, where Moses is through all this. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So he had these children and named these children before he ever went to Egypt. And it's interesting, his firstborn son, if you remember, we talked about how Moses was heartbroken, how he had been kind of offended by God. And, you know, he didn't, he wasn't circumcising his kids on the eighth day. Um, but Gershom means I'm a sojourner in a foreign land. Mm. That's one of the interesting things when you go through the Bible to see how many people identify as sojourners, even when they're in the land, right? Um, Jacob will refer to himself as a sojourner. You know, nobody, and why, why would they do that? What does that mean? That they have hope for a better future? They have hope for a better future, but it's, it's to acknowledge that everywhere I am in this life on this planet is not my home. Why? 
you know, Hebrews picks up on this that says Abraham, who's walking around in the promised land, right, that God is saying this is going to be all your descendants, that Abraham refused to build a city because he was looking forward to a city whose builder and architect is God. He's looking forward to the heavenly city. And so he made himself a stranger and an alien in the land. And so did Isaac. And so did Jacob. And you'll see David using that language in Solomon. Even at the height of the kingdom, they're still saying we're sojourners and foreigners in a land. And, and in Leviticus, when God says, this is how you are to behave in the promised land, Leviticus, which is the law of Moses, is going to tell you this land is not your own. You're merely my tenants in this world, right? There's nothing you have that wasn't granted you by God. He owns everything that you own, and he owns everything that you are. And so the Bible wants you to understand none of this stuff is mine. None of it. We're, we're all sojourners. And so Moses names his son Gershom, you know, that could be all of our names. We're all sojourners. This is not my home. And that concept, when I remember when I was a a brand new believer and I was reading a book by Max Licato, which is, you know, they're really practical. When I first became a believer, I devoured Max Licato, pastor from Texas, good dude. But he was talking, and as a young believer, I remember this concept being so profound to me. He said, you would not get on a train to go home, something like this. I'm paraphrasing. So sorry, Max Licato, for me butchering yeah, your writing. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> but if you got on a train and you're looking across the aisle and you see a guy and he's putting a welcome mat on the floor and knickknacks on the windowsill and hanging drapes and decorating everything around him, what would you think? That he's crazy. He's totally crazy. Why? Because that's not his home. That's, you're, you're decorating a train, which is just a vehicle to get you to your ultimate home. You're treating it like it's your forever home. And you would look at that person and go, that person's absolutely insane. You should not get that attached to your seat on the train because it's just temporary and you're on your way home. And he's like, but how many of us genuinely believe that we're a mist and a vapor. We're here for a moment and gone, but we have this eternal kingdom that's stored up. And whatever we can do in this life is storing up treasures for that one. And yet we ignore the opportunity to live as though we're on a, on a journey to our home. And instead we make the stupid subway train our home. Verse four, and the name of the other Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And so there's some people that have argued that this is, you know, Eliezer is a nickname that he got after being delivered out of Egypt, but it very well could be that he named his son Eliezer because remember, he had to run away at the age of 40 from Pharaoh who wanted to kill him. And so maybe he did name his son Eliezer, remembering that he'd been spared from Pharaoh when he ran out of Egypt. But either way, both of these sons receive their are born before Moses goes and, and battles Pharaoh with the plagues and all that stuff. But the name Eliezer is means God is my help. He could be the only person named that. Like, what a specific name. Like, those are two very but specific Abraham's things. servant that he wanted to give all of his stuff was named Eliezer. Huh. Before he had, he's like, I don't have any descendants, so am I going to leave it to Eliezer of Damascus, my servant? Why that guy? Why was he named that? God is my help. I don't know. What about the sword part? Oh, the sword's not part of the name. El and Azer. In Hebrew, anytime you see El, um, that means God. So like my name is Samuel, Samuel, right? And it comes from Shema. If you ever heard that, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema, and it literally means to hear. And so Samuel, Shamael, means heard of God. And in this case, Eliezer, El is God, and Azer is helper. Are you making up that Samuel thing? No, it's really, it's really true. Michael, Rachel, all those have God. In really? Them. Yeah. And the other thing is, so that's the formal name of God, Elohim. That's where you'll find El. But the covenant name of God is where you find the Ayah at the end of a name. So like Isaiah, that's going to be Yahweh. It's the abbreviation for Yahweh, Jeremiah. At the end of a name, that's always referring to God's covenantal name. So that's part of their name. So just worthless trivia. Fun fact. <laughs> for for you to, to throw in there. But Azer is, that's a term that's used for your wife. Like when it says, I want to make a helpmate for you. 
Eve is referred to as a helpmate. And the the cool thing about it, when his name is Eliezer, you know who else is referred to as Azer's the Holy Spirit. Like when when God, he's the helper. He's the helper. The Holy Spirit is your helper. And that's a cool idea because the, the the word literally means like it's help in the sense of like completing you. You need this. This is going to make you the full version of yourself. So Eve and Adam complete each other. They're, they're each other's completions, right? And the Spirit is given to us in that same way. Like you're not the full version of will until the Azer comes. And that's kind of the idea behind that. So God is my help. So it's a cool name. So verse five, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses because Moses sends them home. So Jethro, the father-in-law, is taking care of his daughter and his grandkids. And they come to him in the wilderness where he was and camped at the mountain of God. So now they're at Sinai. You know, this is, if you remember when God comes to Moses at the burning bush, the burning bush was at Sinai. And one of the signs that God gave to Moses, he says, I'm going to deliver you. And one of the signs is I'm going to bring you right back to this mountain. So Moses knows following a pillar or not, this was to be his destination. He's coming back to Mount Sinai. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. And I love this because who's Moses at this point? He's a big dog. He's a big dog, right? He's He's got a whole nation behind him. He's just defeated Pharaoh. He is a reputable man that would have been very famous and respected through that region. And it says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Hmm. So utter humility. Like this, he's, Moses, again, he, he never rarely shows anger he he's quick to forgive he he wants to be blotted out before the israelites are even though they're mistreating him if there's ever a guy who should have had a chip on his shoulder like moses is right at the top of that list and if there's ever a guy who should have had an ego problem you know after all the stuff that god used him to accomplish and yet he's still quick to want to bow down and and show honor and kiss someone else this guy really is amazing yeah, and I think it's those wilderness years that did both of those things. Mm-hmm. I agree. Like, that's a fascinating thing. That Like, that's where Moses found humility. That's where mm-hmm. Moses found all of that. Yeah, because you remember, it, it tells us later on in the scriptures, why Why did he kill the Egyptian? He believed that everybody would what? Rise up. Everybody's going to rise up and follow me. I'm the man. Look at me. I'm, I'm going to be the deliverer. And God's like, mm, not yet. <laughs> you you got to go wander around the desert with a bunch of dumb sheep the school of wilderness that's right in preparation for another 40 years wandering around with a bunch of dumb sheep but he that's where he learns the humility to be like you know what like last time i was angry and bitter because they didn't follow me and now he's like why did i want that (laughs) right Right, and he's learning, and now he's looking at this guy who is a a big deal to be a priest of Midian. Like that's you're you're among the leaders of this nation, and Moses is like, I'll totally defer and bow down and and honor you. And they asked each other of the wealth of their welfare, and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father in law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them. And I want you to imagine this because it's easy to kind of jump out of the story, but if you're Moses, imagine all the hard things that he had to do. Who's he confiding in? Finally, God in his kindness, it's like I imagine that God ordained that Jethro would be the priest of Midian because he absolutely knows what Moses is walking through. Oh man, I I deal with people too <laughs> and ministry and I know, good grief, do I know what you're walking through. And to have somebody who can look at you and say, gosh, I've been through that too, is really powerful. And it's a tremendous ministry if you're walking through it to have somebody say, you know what, been there. Like yeah. I, I can relate, it's, it's, it is powerful. And it's interesting that how much space the Bible gives this chapter. Mm-hmm. It it's is. interesting how the Bible chooses, like how much gets because some places you're like, I need more. Mm-hmm. I knew, and this one, as I was reading, I'm like, okay, let's we can yeah. press fast forward a little bit. This could have been four verses. Yeah, but it's interesting they say no. Like, there's a major point here that mm-hmm. Moses needed somebody, 
Absolutely. And Jethro was the guy to do it. And and if you remember, you know, we're coming not that far after the story where Moses is leading the battle of the Amalekites, right? Mm-hmm. And what's the what's the point of that story? Like they have victory so long as his hands are up in the air and he's he's looking to God for deliverance and God gives him victory, but he's too weak to do that on his own. So God is giving also the message, you need a man on this side and you need a guy on this side to lift up your arms because you're not always going to be strong enough to do it on your own. And so that's the big message that we come out of this last chapter with. And then we come into this message and Jethro is going to nail that point home. Moses, you cannot do this on your own. You will not only destroy yourself, but you'll destroy your community. Yeah. And Moses probably after that, he probably understood like it would be easy for him to write off. Okay. That was physical. Obviously I can't hold my arms up the whole time. I'm just a man. But now Jethro is saying, no, it's more than just your physical body that needs that. It's also your soul in a way. Yeah. And Moses is not superhuman. You can imagine the amount of stress of having to lead through the plagues. I mean, imagine what that's like. And he's old. Like that. Imagine that you are the one who goes to announce that the people of Egypt are going to lose their children. Mm. Like, that, that's not like a small thing that you just recover from or or to watch them lose all their livestock and their industry and to see the plagues and to know that this wasn't necessary and yet everybody's looking at you. Your people might be cheering you, but you're looking at a nation that's in tears and rebellion against God to walk around with that. I mean, it's not just like Moses went, well, you, you should have picked a different Pharaoh. Like you, you, that's not the reality. Like Moses has to wear that. He's human. And so... He's, and then what's his reward? His own people are coming after him. So he's, gosh, this guy had to carry a lot. Like you, we, we tend to just romanticize these stories and forget that there's very real people with real emotions and uh, <laughs> real problems. And so here you have Jethro who's coming and saying, Moses vents and says, this is all the hardships that we had and how God has delivered us from them. And it says, verse 9, and Jethro rejoiced, which, by the way, yes, we need to rejoice with each other in our victories because you can lose sight of that when you're in the daily grind. You need somebody that says, my goodness, like God has been so faithful to you. That's wonderful. Like, I'm sure Moses was like, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Now that's Yahweh. So he's, they have a relationship with Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know. So it's like, it's like this has dawned on me now. Now, I, now it's proven. I can see it. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. So that tells you a little bit about the Midianite worship. Like Yahweh is among the gods, but now Yahweh is the chief among the gods. And Moses hasn't gotten the first commandment yet to smack him over the head with, but he's the only God. But anyway, Jethro is realizing your God is supreme because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. So the Egyptians were cruel and God put them in their place despite all their gods. Clearly, Yahweh is supreme. And so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Verse 13. So this is a big honor. And hospitality culture, when you shared a meal, it's like, and this is true for pretty much all of time in the Eastern cultures. When you share a meal with someone, it's like you're saying, you're in. You're one of us. We identify with you. And so they don't say, ooh, you're a Midianite. You know, it's it's pretty cool. And I love, by the way, that before you get to the law of God, you have an outsider who's not, you know, perfect in his covenant. He's not perfect in all of his theology. He's not. And God comes to Moses and blesses Moses with somebody who's not a believer that gives the wisdom of God to him, which means not all wisdom has to come directly from the Bible because all truth is God's truth. You know, God puts people in your path that are believers and unbelievers that might be pointing you to genuine wisdom. And in this case, Jethro, you know, I think we'll probably see Jethro in heaven, but he's got really screwy theology, right? And yet God uses him before he gets the law to be like, hey, I'm going to bless you with the wisdom of some outsider. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I never thought about it like that. 
All right, so verse 13, it says, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And so in this, this is like whenever you see kind of the way that, that courts worked in the ancient world, the judge would sit. And so Moses sat, and all the people are standing. And so it was a, a picture of honor of who got to sat and who would be standing. Who got what, to sat? Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, who sorry, got, I can't let you go through with that. <laughs> And so that was normal in ancient culture where the, the respected one would get to sit and everyone else is standing around him. Um, and it says, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, it's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do this alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And every great matter they shall bring it to you, every small matter they shall decide by themselves." So it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Why is this brilliant? I think it's fascinating that he only had to watch for a day. Like Jethro <laughs> saw how dysfunctional the system was after just like one sun up to sundown. He's like, no, you're, you're done for. What are you doing? Yeah, totally. I mean, I do get why the people wanted this. He's top dog. Everybody yeah. wants to go straight to the top dog. Mm -hmm. And you just, and you get part of Moses. I don't know why Moses' intentions with this, but part of them are probably pure and part of them are probably distorted. Yeah. You know, like part of it's like, oh no, I want to care for these people well, but part of it's also like, it is nice for a while to be the person that people want to come to. Mm -hmm. But just like Jethro was saying, it's not a sustainable thing. Like it may be fun and hit your ego at first, but it doesn't last. Yeah, so point of personal privilege where I, I like when I think about this, I go right back to my life in 2012. And so I was coming in as the headmaster at Bethany. Bethany at that point, coming out of an economic crisis and everything else, had enrollment that was really low. We were upside down in our budget. And so when I came on, it was like, okay, we're not going to hire staff to help out. And I was the headmaster. And then Dave Ingram, who was our dean, got cancer, and he was out quite a bit. So now I was headmaster and dean. And, oh, by the way, he taught Bible, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that job too. And his wife was the preschool director, who was around quite a bit, but would often be out, and I would have to step into her role as preschool director. And I was going through ordination. And so everybody sees me as a pastor, as a headmaster, as the curriculum guy, as everything, operations manager for the school and literally for that year, I would stay up working, doing my job after everybody went home because from morning to night, it was problems. And this problem's going on here. This problem's going on here. And then at night, I would have to work on curriculum and responding to emails. And I was up every night. And then I was also doing Bible studies. And I remember talking with somebody else who was kind of my Jethro at the time. And <laughs> he was the headmaster at a different school who I'd also gone to seminary with. And he was like, you're nuts. Like, I know you think that you're doing the right thing by saving money and trying to get the school into a good place. And within a year, the school rebounded and was in amazing good shape. And we brought in team and support and everything else. But he was like, you're crazy because what you don't know is, is you're trying to take all these responsibilities and it's inevitable that this is going to make you collapse, right? Like you, you can't do, you can't sustain this. So eventually you're going to burn out. And when you burn out, it's going to impact the institution and everybody is going to be worse for it because you're incapable of doing this. No person is designed to carry all of this. 
And it was very much a Jethro moment. But one of the other things that he said is by trying to carry everything, you're doing a disservice to people who need more attention than you can give them. And so you've got genuine people that are coming to you hurting. And it's like, okay, I'm like, who's next? It felt like a deli counter. Like, okay, next, 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 next. But I'm dealing with people that have real hurt, real pain, real problems. And it's like, I'm, I'm trying to get to everybody, but nobody can get the full attention they deserve. I'm treating everything at superficial levels and they're getting frustrated with me because I'm like, next, next, next. And they're not being pastored well because one person's trying to do the job of what should be multiple people. And it was like, I thought I was doing the ministry a good thing by burning myself into the ground when in reality, like it was very foolish and those people weren't being cared for well. And the right thing to do would have been to recruit help and to say, hey, I, I need some other people around me. And so for Jethro to come to Moses and be like, hey, I know what you think, what you're, you think what you're doing is good. But in reality, like y- you wonder why all these people are angry at you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you don't you're not enough to go around bud like you've got to humble up and then the other side of that is you're stripping from other people an opportunity to learn how to lead yeah. like a part of discipleship is is saying like hey i think i could do this better than you i think my wisdom's probably going to be better than the other israelites that are wandering around that are twiddling their thumbs cuz i haven't deployed them i'm probably going to make the better decision but you're never going to grow if you don't if you're not put in a situation where you can start to learn how to lead. And so this is not just sparing Moses, but it's training up all these other people that are getting into positions of leadership and and spreading their wings and learning to fly. It's like if if as pastors, one of the things I love about our church is Tom is not at all um, like, well, I'm the senior pastor and therefore I have to be the center of the show. Like he looks at someone like you <laughs> and says, man, I want you in the pulpit. I want you preaching. I want you growing your gifts. And I want Mason doing this. And I want Sam doing that. And I want you guys to then empower people to do that behind you and to grow. And that's that's the model. That's how you disciple. And that's how you grow the next generation. It's not, ooh, I'm in charge. Let me handle all the things. Because you're going to... There's not enough of you to go around, one. And two, you're stripping everyone else around you from having an opportunity to grow. Yeah, there's going to come a time when this is a nation. And he's preparing them for that. Like, Moses, you can't run this place. That's right. And this is super, I mean, the, the, the qualifications that Jethro lays down here as well, it's very similar to what you find in the New Testament when Paul is saying, this is what an elder should look like. You know, this This is what a deacon should look like. I mean, he says that you should look for able men from all the people. So that he's, you need to go find capable people that God is equipped with talents to put in there. But it's not just that they have ability. They need to fear God. Like, these are, these are people that are God-fearing, moral, want to do the right thing, have kingdom mindsets, not earthly ones. They're trustworthy. They hate a bribe, Right? I'm not doing this for the kingdom of sand. I'm not doing this for the accolades. I'm not doing this for the paycheck. I'm not doing this for any other reason than I want to honor God. And that needs to be the mindset of every leader inside the church or the people of God. And Jethro's like, you get that kind of person and you set them over groups. And it's almost like the federal system where you have you know local governments, county governments, state governments, national governments that same kind of layered level needs to be in the church. And that's that's why I love the Presbyterian model so much. I don't so you want to take a side note into church governance? Uh no. <laughs> Will is studying for his ordination exams. This is not exciting to him. No. But like you do basically they boil down to three different types of governments. And I think ours is the best, but I love all of them, right? So you have the monarchical view. That's like the Catholic where you have the Pope and what he says goes, right? That's that's the Episcopal view. Where you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury and he's kind of leading the church and what he says goes. But then on the other side of that, you've got the congregational model, which is like pure democracy. It's Baptist. They vote for the pastor, they fire the pastor. They've they they do a lot of things on the pure democratic side of things. And in the middle is the Presbyterian model, which is where you where the people elect elders that then speak on their behalf. 
And I think that's the closest to what you find in the scriptures, overseers. And by the way, when Paul gives the word overseers, the Greek word behind that is presbyteroi, which is where you get Presbyterian, which is, if you didn't know that, Rio Vista is Presbyterian. Few people know that. Shocker. (laughs) But we elect elders. And And we we just did. We did. We did just elect elders. And so in a Presbyterian model, you have a church, and that church then is part of a presbytery, which governs over that region's worth of churches. Then that presbytery is part of a general assembly. And so it's like this division that you find Jethro saying, hey, there's going to be some bodies that govern over tens of thousands, some bodies that are going to govern over local thousands, and there's going to be some bodies that govern over the 50s or tens or hundreds, which is the local church and the sessions and the elders. And so that division of labor makes it so that one church just can't go totally rogue. And if you have a big decision, it works its way up the chain. And that's what Jethro's saying. Like, in the big decisions, that needs to come to you, Moses, because you are called by God. You got a direct pipeline. The big decisions that nobody can figure out, that should land on your desk. But the ordinary local squabbling, you know, that where everybody's just upset about nonsense, please let someone else deal with that. Those people need... (laughs) special attention let him get mad at someone else (laughs) verse 24 so moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said moses chose able men out of israel and made them heads over the people chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens and they judged the people at all times any hard case they brought to moses but any small matter they decided themselves Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. He's very lucky to have had this guy show up who can relate and immediately diagnose the issue and be like, oh, man, you know, like I know that you as a nation are just starting out and just figuring this out. Let me share with you some wisdom that we've already learned because humanity is so difficult to shepherd. You know, it really is. Let Let me give you some pointers, and this is going to dramatically be a blessing to Moses, but like this is a suffering life to lead Mm -hmm. people that hate you and are constantly calling you out. And I mean, let's just, Moses has a very stressful life and to find this moment where he gets somebody who can relate to him that shows up out of the blue is such a blessing. But a lot of, a lot of guys don't have that. And I think this community is something that affects everybody, but I think it affects men more uniquely than women because women are more naturally communal guys don't want to be vulnerable we don't want to say hey i'm struggling my job is kicking my butt you know this is hard and i'm not sure that i'm liking this and there's things about and ministry you know you can have a, a men's group right and you'll come and you'll get a devotional message and it's nice and you see some other guys but it is not what you find in the Bible, and it's not what you find through all time. And, and there's something different about our culture today that makes it a unique challenge. Because if you go back any other time through history up until about 50 years ago, it always felt like culture and society and villages are just one decision, one natural disaster, one movement away from catastrophe where everybody's got to rely on one another, right? You know, if your village is getting sacked, if there's a famine that comes, if and everybody was always on edge. And so by necessity, what did you have to do? Neighbors had to look out for each other. You know, you didn't have Amazon. So if, if you were growing sugar and your neighbor had corn, you were kind of forced into this thing together. You had to rely on one another. You had to look out for one another. And we have created, and that's one of the backfires of capitalism, which I love, and I'm all about that. But one of the backfires of all the excess and and the bonuses and the the wonderful side of it is we don't need each other. You know, like we've got all these safeguards to our bank accounts and FDIC insurance and we get Amazon and there's grocery stores and supply chains. There's so many institutional safeguards that in my mind, unless there's a catastrophic collapse of society, which (laughs) give it time. With all of those safeguards, I can do my own individual thing, and I don't have to covenant with you, Will, to say, hey, you know what? Like, I've got four kids. Something could happen to me. 
And I need to be able to know that I can rely on you and Morgan and a crisis to say, you're going to be there for me and I'm going to be there for you. And when you're going through life, like locked arm, like I'm covenanting with you that no matter what may come, like I got your back brother. And you feel that it's like the sense of belonging where we're going to suffer together and we're covenanting that we're going to suffer together. There's none of that in modernity anymore. It has been stripped away. We've become so comfortable. There's that word again, right? It's back to the slavery that we first started talking about where everything's individual. You know, dealing with people is really messy. And right now, you know what? We have such an individualistic culture where we don't need to rely on one another that, you know what, I'd rather not. Like what the good of having you in my life, you know, the messiness that you bring is just too much. So I'm going to go walk my own. And now we have this crazy epidemic of loneliness that's crushing people. And nobody knows what to do with it because humanity's never experienced a season like this before. Do you, do you sense that? Is that? Do you think, do you think that's a right analysis? Yeah. I also think it's we have a bad idea of suffering because we live in a world that wants to, if you're suffering, you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And that, or it's somebody's fault. It's somebody's fault. And we got to get rid of it. Yeah. And just that it's something that you can get rid of. Mm-hmm. And that our yeah. whole life is trying to like slowly, like there can be no suffering because I have enough money. I have the right wife. I have the right kids. And, you know, so I'm trying to force all of this out. And I think that's a real modern thing because everywhere else was just like, oh no. And then, you know, early 1900s, you know, when we went yeah. to world wars, they weren't like, yeah, you had to give up stuff and lean on each other. And that by nature, I remember, you know, my parents' house got destroyed. I may have mentioned this on a previous episode, but my parents' house got destroyed in Hurricane Francis years back. They live up in Vero Beach and everybody's house had damage, right? And they'd gone from not knowing their neighbors to all of a sudden the neighbors are coming out of the woodwork saying, hey, I've got a generator and hey, I've got these supplies. No, I've got a tarp. And it's like, oh, nice to meet you. I've been living next to you for two decades, but it's not until suffering comes along that we've got a covenant together as a neighborhood to get through this. I mean, you felt the same thing after 9-11 where the nation was punched in the gut and a sense of suffering that made us all come together and want relationship and want comfort from each other and to be like, I don't know what's coming. This is a really unsettling time. I need you. And it's like God in his kindness brings these destabilizing times that force us to realize we're not made to do this alone. And this is one of the great messages of Moses as he's in this position where he's like, I'm the guy and he's carrying all the plates and all the chaos and all of the pain and all of the heartache. And Jethro's like, uh, dude, no, mm. not only are you going to burn yourself out and destroy yourself trying to carry all that alone, but you're going to fail to minister to these people in the way they need. You need to raise them up to care for one another. And if man alive, if there's one thing that I wish I could shake into being in our church is a sense that you need to care for one another. We have this, this idea, and this is going to sound like pastor on a soapbox, but we have this idea. Oh, the pastor's job is to minister. It's the pastor's job to shepherd. It's the pastor's job to point people to Jesus and to comfort no, like we're the equippers. You are the universal priesthood of believers, the Bible says. You're a royal nation of priests. What does a priest do? They offer mercy. They offer comfort. That's your job. You should know how to minister to each other. Even, and I know that sounds, you know, intimidating, minister to somebody. Go love them. How about we put it in just simple terms? Go love them. Be there for them. Go to them like a Jethro and be like, hey, man, I see what you're going through. And man, I see the way God is blessing you. And oh, let me give you some counsel that's really going to help you because I've been where you are and I see you and I know what this is like. This is medicine to Moses in a way that you don't see Moses getting from many other people. And it just took one man who comes along and says, I see where you're at. I'm proud of you, man. You're doing amazing. Let me help you with something that I've learned, you know, life giving to Moses. Mm-hmm. We could use a lot more of that. And even if it's, you know, cause I'm going to tell you like my community groups and micro groups, every time I'm invited to be a part of one, it's like another thing, <laughs> you know, and it's going to be messy and there's going to be somebody in my group that, you know, comes and says, I need this and I need this. And it's going to cost me something. Yes, it's going to cost you something. The church, we don't want to engage in things unless we know that it's going to be a blessing to me, right? 
is this, is this going to feed me? Dude, get that out of your brain. You need to be a part of it because you have an obligation to go feed someone else. And that is going to feed you when you feed someone else. That's the dynamic of Christianity. You know, you greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And on the much, much smaller scale, Jesus isn't asking you to climb up on a cross and to suffer death, but he's asking you to sacrifice a little bit for the sake of your neighbor. Stand up. You know, the church needs its leaders of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands and that's you. How is God calling you out there to stand up and, and to invest in people and to use your talents to point people toward the kingdom? Yeah, it's a good diagnosis that we all need to be a Moses and we all need to be a Jethro and we need to figure out where those, who, who we are in those people's lives. Like who do you go to when you need advice that's been down the block a time or two before you? Mm-hmm. But also, who are you that person for? Yeah. I mean, if, if I were to ask, we did this with our elders and people on staff and a number of others years ago, and it was like, tell me the most formative moment or thing that helped you to grow in your relationship with Christ. And it was an overwhelming percentage of, of people that said, I met this person. Mm. You know, it was it was Dave Ingram. It was, it was Don Marks. It was Warren Gage. It was or whoever that is, it was always a person. And we're so keen to say, read this book, go to this program, do this Bible study that, you know, you get to keep at arm's length. The formative, I'm sure if you're listening out there, probably the most formative thing that drew you closer to Christ and amplified your faith is when you found somebody who is willing to invest in you. Person to person. If you want the kingdom to grow, Bible studies, listening to podcasts, this is great, right? Sure, this is going to be edifying, but it's not going to do anything close to what it will do when you invest in another person and that person feels seen like they've got someone who has their back, arm in arm, like ready to go out and do the world together, covenanting and friendship together. That's life-changing, and that's what this world and this upcoming generation needs a lot more of. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Out of Water podcast. We will join you next week as we jump into Exodus 19, and God is going to bring some thunder and fire and quaking to Mount Sinai. Pretty terrifying, but fascinating. Join us then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.